This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week we're talking about animals and us. Even in my unnatural life here, spent in my home office staring at a screen for at least eight hours a day, animals play an essential role. Even though I might not really think about it, at least not nearly as much as I should. The eggs in my refrigerator feed me, the squirrels outside my window entertain me, and the neighborhood raccoons, they irritate me. Oh, and my cat Zelda, she keeps me company while I'm staring at this screen. To really think about my relationship with even this very suburban menagerie is to enter into a philosophical and moral minefield. What right do I have to interrupt or manipulate the lives of these beings? And what is that interruption doing to them and to me? Now, explode that quandary to the entire globe and all of modern history. And, well, you have the discussion that we're featuring on today's episode. For this year's Crosscut Festival, held back in May, we invited Peter Singer and Michelle Nyhaus to talk about our complicated relationship with the animal kingdom. Michelle is a science journalist, an editor at The Atlantic, and the author of Beloved Beasts, which details the birth and growth of the movement to protect and conserve animal populations. Peter is a philosopher, and he is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. He's also written a lot of books over his long career, many of which address the intersection of animals and ethics. The latest is The Golden Ass, a retelling of the ancient story of a man who turns into an ass. Leading the conversation this week with great insight and enthusiasm is CrossCut's own science and environment reporter, Hannah Weinberger. This conversation and all other conversations on the science and environment track at the 2021 CrossCut Festival is sponsored by John S. Adams, CFP, and UBS, which would like to share the following message. The Arbor Group at UBS has a straightforward mission to help you make the world a better place. Through personal financial planning and sustainable investment management, the Arbor Group works with each of their clients to pursue that client's specific goals. Learn more by visiting ubs.com team slash the Arbor Group. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Thank you so much, Peter and Michelle, for being here. Okay, so (laughs) let's dive right in. Humans have had various types of relationships with animals for millennia. As companions, as food, as enemies, you've both done a lot of work tracing the evolution of those relationships. Is welfare something that we've always considered when we think about animals' experiences of the world or with us? Like, is this a new concept? And if not, how has it evolved? You know, Peter, you you actually recently put out a book that really touched on this. I certainly did, yes. Um, I brought out a new edition of The Golden Ass by Apuleius. This is a, a novel that was written in the second century of our era. So it's 1,800 years old. And what 
first commended to me and is remarkable about it, I think, is that it's a story about a man who dabbles in magic and things go a bit wrong and he gets turned into a donkey. And then he lives as a donkey for quite some time and goes through many of the experiences that donkeys went through in Roman times. So he was forced to carry heavy loads up steep hills. He was beaten with sticks if he didn't. Uh, sometimes sadistic boys played tricks on him. And particularly interesting is an episode where he was sold to a miller and had to all day long walk in circles, turning the millstone. Effectively, he was a slave and there were human slaves there who were beating him if he didn't turn the millstone. So we get this picture of the donkey's life in Roman times. And it is um, an empathetic picture. Uh, you know, we, we imagine we, we, it's described what it's like for the donkey. And, and I found it remarkable for that reason. But it is unusual, I have to say. I'm not saying that typically Romans did have this concern for the welfare of animals. Obviously, we know about the Roman games in the Colosseum. We know that Christians were thrown to the lions, but also they scoured the Roman Empire for exotic beasts and brought them in to fight and kill each other. So um, this is an unusual work in that sense. There were, there were some other writers, not unique, but it's unusual for the empathy that it has with animals. Um, and it does raise that question. Well, you know, how are we compared to the Romans or compared to the, the life of the donkey? Uh, have we improved? Have we made progress? Uh, and if so, in what ways? You know, Michelle, this is something you have looked into, too, in terms of how people driving the conservation movement have felt about animals and the degree to which that influenced their activities. Yes. And as I was beginning to write that history, I revisited Aesop's fables, who was writing several centuries before Apuleius. And but there there are a lot of commonalities, I think, uh, in their work, if not in if not in structure, certainly in theme um, and in tone. There's a similar kind of racy humor. There's a similar um, sometimes shocking violence and a and, but also a sense of empathy between humans and animals. Often the animals are stand-in for stand-ins for humans, but they're also often animals, or at least partly animals. And we get a sense from Aesop's stories that just of the many different roles that an individual animals and types of animals played in human lives all those many centuries ago, and perhaps. We have made progress in some ways, but that complexity certainly remains. Absolutely. You know, when it comes to that complexity, what, what do you think about, Peter? So, um, I, as I said, I'm particularly interested in the episode where the donkey is a slave turning the millstone, because in a sense, the miller was not cruel. The miller was using the most efficient ways of grinding the corn to produce flour. Um, and... That's, uh, but obviously ne completely neglecting the interests of the donkey. The donkey was just a tool. And had it not been for chance episodes that led the donkey to get away, um, the donkey wouldn't have lasted very long, would have been worked to death. Now, something similar, I think, happens today in our factory farms. The, uh, the hens in the factory farms are basically tools for producing eggs. The cows are tools for producing milk. And the other animals are converting low-priced grain into high-priced high flesh. So I think there's the same attitude going on here. It's not that people are necessarily deliberately cruel to these animals, although, of course, 
undercover videos do show that sometimes the farm workers who have a pretty tough life anyway um, do take out their frustrations on the animals. But but just the system itself is basically geared for uh, efficiency, for producing a product that can compete in the marketplace where there aren't too many rules about how you have to treat the animals. Uh, and the result is uh, a terrible life for the animals. And because today that's on a vastly greater scale than the, the donkeys turning millstones and other kinds of industrial cruelty in, in the Roman era, I think it's it's hard to say that we've made progress. There are certainly far more animals suffering in the world today than there were in Roman times. Right. And, you know, since, since those times, we've learned a lot about animals, about our relationships with them, both biologically and emotionally. How do assumptions about human superiority affect our treatment of animals? You know, you've both pointed to how there's been some you know, surprising violence. And even today, there are still examples of, you know, real brutality. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, human superiority is, is a significant part of this. And of course, that's reinforced by various ideas that we have. The idea that uh, we were made in the image of God, but animals were not. That we have immortal souls, that animals don't. That God gave us dominion over the animals. Certainly in, in Western uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, um, some of those things are important. And, and we still maintain that in various ways, even though we've known since Darwin that we are related to animals, we're not a separate creation, um, and that there are many similarities between us and animals in terms of our ability to feel pain, to suffer, our emotional connections with others you know, when we're talking about social animals or with uh, mothers and their young particularly. So uh, we, sh we should know better now, I think. But um, in practical terms, we are still living with the systems of treating animals that developed from a previous age when we did think of ourselves as entitled to treat animals uh, as we wish. Yes, I, I think um, Darwin also was the uh, source of a, a pivotal moment in the conservation movement, not only because he informed us that we were part of nature and that our species could change uh, along with every other species on earth and that, that we were related to it, but also quietly informed uh, Victorian society that humans could cause extinctions, which was not widely acknowledged at the time. Perhaps there were, you know, there were extinctions on on distant islands caused by uh, explorers and colonists, but as far as human ability to cause a species to go globally extinct, that, that wasn't widely understood until Darwin acknowledged it. And then uh, Lewis Carroll turned himself into a dodo in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. That was another important step in that, in that uh, I think, cultural understanding. Um, but that, that understanding really did jumpstart the conservation movement. It wasn't, and, and I think that was a recognition of human, of humans negative power over, uh, you know, we were, we had been told we as members of industrialized Christian societies had been told, oh, we, we had a responsibility. We had dominion over the other creatures. We had a responsibility to steward them. And suddenly we were told we were both less powerful and that we were part of nature, so to speak. 
and we were less and and uh, we were we were power, but yet we were powerful enough to drive these species extinct. Right. You, you've both really emphasized in your work the value of um, intellectual humility, recognizing the power that we wield and being a little tempered in how we wield it based on the limitations of what we know, uh, which I've really appreciated. Uh, that actually flows into a conversation we could have about the role of technology uh, in changing our relationships with animals and the planet and being better stewards. You know, how significant is it that we can bioengineer meat-like plant proteins or calorie-boosting GMO crops or nearly bioengineer endangered species in labs? Can we impossible burger our way out of our unhealthy relationship with, with meat and large farming or artificially create enough animals to replenish the populations we have in many ways to use technology to eliminate? Well, I, yeah, I, I know Peter has written extensively about artificial meat. I'll, I'll leave that to him. Uh, what I wrote about at the end of my history of conservation as I looked into the future was uh, our increasing ability to uh, use assisted reproduction techniques to uh, help very endangered species continue uh, as, as species. And uh, there is some important work being done and some of it may well be valuable. What I worry about is that um, it will be interpreted by the public as being what conservation is about when really those kinds of technologies are, are the, the, the best making, trying to make the best of a very bad situation. The conservation should really be starting when animals are abundant. We should be trying to keep populations healthy, not trying to keep the last two or three animals of, of their species on, on the planet from going extinct. And uh, the line that sticks in my mind was I spent some quite a bit of time with uh, marine biologists who are working on uh, artificial uh, reproduction of coral in the Caribbean. And one of them said, yeah, you know, when we have an advance in our work, we, we often will, will tell people about it and they'll say, well, that's great. Well, now the Great Barrier Reef is fine. <laughs> he said, and my response is always like, what are you effing talking about? <laughs> and you know, that people, so people who use these technologies are very aware of their limitations. They're very aware of how difficult they are to develop and they're very aware that they are an insurance policy at best, but I do worry about the public's interpretation of, oh, we could just make more animals, that, so things will be fine. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. I think there's no substitute for preserving the habitat in which the animals can thrive, and we're not doing that very well in many parts of the world. Yeah. Um, but but to come to the uh, alternatives to meat, I I do think that this can be important because. We have uh, a growing demand for meat, unfortunately, particularly in those countries that are becoming more prosperous um, and people are demanding more meat. Uh, China's the most obvious example, but there are others. And uh, if we were to meet this and continue to meet it through animal production, not only would that greatly increase the number of animals suffering in factory farms, but it would also make it pretty much impossible to meet the climate change goals that we have of uh, not exceeding 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius. So um, we really need these alternatives. Uh, they can be plant-based alternatives, and we already have some very good plant-based alternatives out there. You mentioned Impossible Burgers, but there's a lot of different products. Um, uh, and uh, people are working on, on cellular 
animal products. That is things that really are meat, dairy products, um, but uh, never saw a whole animal were grown at the cellular level. And uh, it has been shown that that can be done uh, very efficiently in terms of uh, limited, very limited amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. Of course, there's no organism suffering. And uh, we reduce the risks of pandemics too, because uh, we have had pandemics coming out of factory farms, particularly the swine flu pandemic of 2009. So uh, I think this, this could be really important if it works. And uh, there is actually one product already on sale. Um, uh, cultured fish has been sold in Singapore has licensed its use and it, it's uh, available from a restaurant in Singapore. It's not yet competitive in price with uh, fish pieces brought at your supermarket, but I'm hopeful that the prices will come down and we will have some real alternatives to reduce the amount of suffering and the, and the impact on climate that the livestock industry is generating at present. And it, of course, of course, has the potential to protect habitat as well. Yes, that's right. We don't have to clear the forests yes. for, uh, for beef anymore if we can produce it that way. Yes, and with all the climate, climate benefits that entails too. Mm. Absolutely. You know, speaking of habitats, our ideas have changed over time about how we and animals should occupy space, who belongs in natural areas, how we should manage them, whether they should be free of humans, and there's even a discussion within the Biden administration right now about conserving 30% of the country in some fashion by 2030. You know, what are some of the most, to you, significant changes in how we think about where animals and people belong in order to create healthy, natural spaces? And how does that affect where we conserve or raise them? Hmm. Peter, you're it. smiling. Uh, no, well, I think this is uh, for Michelle, really, to start off at least. I'll, I'll maybe come in. <laughs> well, the evolution in the conservation movement uh, that I, I have seen, and of course, this is speaking very broadly, the conservation movement, even if you limit the conservation movement to the mainstream modern conservation movement, it's still a very complicated uh, um, ball of yarn, so to speak. But there is a general arc of progression from um, people protecting iconic, large, often beautiful, or um, species that were very attractive to hunt, uh, to moving to protecting species that people didn't necessarily like or even found obnoxious, uh, and then realizing that, oh, it's also important not just to protect species from being shot with abandoned by humans, but to protect their habitat as well so they can survive in the long term. And, and so conservation really grew up along the science of ecology, which has definitely informed its strategies over the last 150 years or so. I think what the conservation movement is coming to now is realizing that it has to expand its toolbox beyond uh, parks and reserves, which of course have served conservation well in many ways, and we need more of them considering the damage we've done to habitat around the world. But what the conservation movement has not been very good at is supporting people in living sustainably alongside other species, especially species that they are dependent on still for uh, food or shelter or other necessities. And I see the 30 by 30 proposal is as very encouraging as long as it includes 
that piece as long as it includes land tenure for rural communities and indigenous communities which are recovering or uh, expanding their traditional uh, methods of land management, which is not to generalize at all about indigenous people, but there are many effective practices that are that have been expanded in recent years. And we know from research and experience that those can be very successful. And I think as long as those are a major ingredient in 30 by 30, as long as we're not talking about uh, drawing park boundaries around 30% of the planet, it could be a very exciting advance for conservation and for human benefit as well. Yeah, I mean, 30 by 30 is, is, is certainly good compared to where we are now, and we should support that. Uh, E.O. Wilson uh, famously said, you know, in his book, Half the Earth, that he wanted 50% of it set aside. Uh, would be great if we could get there, but maybe that's idealistic and we have to aim for more modest targets at present. Um, the other issue that I, I do think is worth mentioning, although it's sometimes a bit of a taboo, is is human population growth, which is not so much of an issue in the United States. We've just seen figures about it uh, slowing down, and in, there are other affluent countries where it's uh, falling. But if we look at sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of the animals we want to preserve are, um, it's still growing quite rapidly in uh, several of those countries. Um, according to the United Nations predictions, uh, some countries are going to triple um, their population by the end of the century, uh, one or two even um, more than that. Uh, and, and given that uh, there is still a lot of poverty there and people have to worry about what they're going to eat, it's going to be extremely difficult to preserve significant amounts of, of those countries and, and uh, of for, for animals as well. So I think this is something that we ought to be talking about a little bit more. Um, what is an ethical response to concerns about rapid population growth in sub-Saharan Africa? Uh, obviously, we've had unethical responses to that in the past, and I'm not suggesting we repeat some of those uh, mistakes. But I, I do think it's something that uh, we can't avoid if we're talking about conservation of uh, uh, animals and plants um, into the end of this century. The conservation movement has, as, as I'm sure a lot of people listening know, has had a very interesting, <laughs> would be the appropriate word perhaps, uh, encounter with the issue of population growth. Famously, Paul Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb back in 1968 uh, back before people understood how effective it would be to increase the options for women's uh, women's health and reproductive decisions, um, it was assumed back then that oh well, if people have the option, they they want large families, um, especially people in developing countries. This is what the population bomb said at the time, and and we've learned since that given access to reproductive choices, given access to um, improved health services, reproductive rates go down. And I think there, yes, there are countries in, in sub-Saharan Africa where population is still growing very quickly. And that, that does have an enormous effect on, on resources, both for humans and other species. Um, and I, I, I hope the environmental movement is learning to approach it as we know that we know what works. <laughs> um, we we know what works, and that what works is giving women more choice and more resources uh, for their own health. 
Absolutely, Michelle. And, you know, this conversation really fuses closely to a lot of other conversations about the role of prejudice uh, within conservation, within environmentalism. Um, Peter, you've written about how subconscious prejudices impact the way we decide what types of life have value. And Michelle, you've written both about how racist prejudices have influenced who's allowed power uh, in making decisions about what to do with animals, um, and that different communities don't equally bear the burden of conservation and climate adaptations because of their lack of power. Um, does social justice get us closer to liberating animals? You know, how are changing demographics within power dynamics in conservation and animal welfare spaces and who we look to for guidance about how we should treat the planet affecting our ability to tackle conservation or animal welfare? I want to say that I agree with Michelle entirely that giving women more power over their uh, reproduction is is a win-win for women and for uh, the environment and, and for the development of, of those countries. Uh, that's certainly true. Um, it's not always an easy thing to do. It's, uh, you know, the more years of school a girl gets, the, the more likelihood she is going to be able to uh, choose to have a... Uh, a family that she wants, which may not be a very large one, but uh, there are still prejudices in some countries against girls getting the same level of education as boys. Um, and there are also obviously situations in which men are still dominant. And if men want large families, it's very difficult for women to resist that. So there are those kinds of prejudices. Uh, and yes, we do have prejudices against um, uh, taking animals seriously, uh, taking their interests seriously. And uh, as Michelle said, we're more likely to want to save the charismatic megafauna than we are a lot of other animals who are equally important in terms of the lives they're living. And uh, we tend not to really give the same consideration to the animals uh, who we eat. Um, you know, the chickens, the pigs, uh, the, the cows, we put them in a different category and we don't really take them seriously as individuals. Although anybody who takes these animals, who lives with chickens, for example, with a small little flock at home or, or, with, or with pigs um, and cows too, will, will know that they are individuals, that they have their own personalities, that they uh, are different and they have lives that are worth leading for them uh, and that we ought to do what we can to make sure that those lives go as well as they possibly can. I'm thinking fondly of the chickens in my neighborhood that serve as my alarm these days. <laughs> Great. They're lucky ones. If they're, if they're not in a shed like with 10,000 or 20,000 other chickens, then uh, they're among the very fortunate few in, in terms of chickens uh, in the U.S. and in the world generally. Absolutely. And, you know, Michelle, I, I really want to hear more about, um, and you laid this out so well in your book, kind of the changing demographics of people within conservation and how you transfer power in a way that actually influences how we treat the planet and uh, you know the different ways that we treat people relating to the different ways that we treat animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I would just I would add to Peter or, or echo what Peter said in that uh, in in conservation too. I think there has been an, an expanding circle of, of moral concern, as he might put it, uh, for other species, as I was saying earlier, starting with iconic species and then expanding out to, to species that we, we know we, we share an ecological web with, but we, uh, we may not even, even like when we encounter them in everyday life. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the conservation movement did begin as a very elite movement in North America and Europe uh, when it and and when it became an international movement, it mostly moved along colonial paths, worked with colonial governments to establish parks and reserves. So for many years, it was a predominantly white, predominantly elite, predominantly male movement. Um, and in, in some ways still is, but since the eighties, there has been a, a countercurrent in the conservation movement sparked really by the understanding that that parks and reserves in Africa had had displaced people who in some cases in many cases had a very workable system of of small scale management of wildlife uh, in their neighborhoods and it had disrupted those systems and uh, and then also disrupted people's relationships local people's relationships with wildlife and that they had come to think of wildlife broadly as as something that was protected for foreign visitors and not something that they had responsibility and and power to manage as their as previous generations had and so community led conservation i think is is really bringing um i, I think it, it there's it there is really an opportunity to broaden the conservation movement beyond what it's always been which is a, a special interest in in many ways and it shouldn't be a special interest it should be something that everybody practices and community-led conservation which is trying to restore that some of that authority over wildlife to the local level in africa and now in many other places in the world is one way in which burdens of conservation are being shared more equitably, the short-term costs, they're always almost always our short-term costs, and then the benefits are also being shared a little more equitably. And there's some very, well, they're no longer experiments, there's some very long-term, fairly wide, fairly large-scale projects that have had very tangible results in terms of creating or restoring healthy populations of uh, rhinos, elephants, um, all sorts of of species that are usually of great concern um, because of this restoration of local authority and uh, and reestablishing that local authority in relationship with other levels of authority over over wildlife and landscapes. Absolutely. Um, you know, how do you convince people outside of these community conservation programs? to make sacrifices that help animals, but don't seem to improve their own lives immediately, whether that be, you know, seeding habitat or radically changing your lifestyle in terms of what you eat or whether you drive when you impact the climate, you know, <laughs> like how do you get people to make that shift? Uh, so I can address the, you know, the lifestyle questions um, because I have been involved since I published Animal Liberation 45 years ago, really, and trying to persuade people to eat differently and uh, in other respects as well, uh, to live differently. I think you can make some progress, but I must admit it hasn't been as rapid as I would have liked. Uh, so we have seen in the last decade or so uh, an emergence of plant-based eating, which is gratifying to see this out there and to see the wide range of foods and greater acceptability of it. and every restaurant really um, making available vegetarian and, and vegan products. So I think things can catch on and I'm hoping that 
if you get a critical mass of people, as we're starting to get with the plant-based eating, that things will spread more rapidly. Um, as I said before, this is really mostly still in Western countries. Um, uh, I'm actually speaking um, shortly at the launch of the China Vegan Society, which I find a very promising step, but it's hmm. very small, of course, at this stage, and there's a long way to go in changing lifestyle and eating habits in China. Uh, so I think you have to try. And as we were saying earlier, uh, perhaps technology can help, but uh, I, don't, I don't know of any immediate shortcut that is going to produce the changes we need in the coming decade or so, which is really when we need them to be happening on a large scale. Well, I can I can speak to the the conservation and habitat protection side of of the problem. Love uh, to hear the, it of the persuasion problem, um, and and I think I mean we have those of you who are listening in from the Western U.S. know that we have extremely entrenched problems uh, over endangered species in many places, um, and then the the recent rise in in right wing extremism is. So in in some some of that is playing out on the stage of the public lands and is is you know has has its roots in some of these arguments over endangered species. So uh, there there I think there are cases where uh, we where persuasion is a long way off. But I think we also have a lot to learn from uh, recent experiments in recent decades with community based conservation because what those projects have found is that when even when people on the surface are are you know extremely angry at the government for uh, their management of elephant populations which are trampling their crops or or even you know harming their family if those as I was saying earlier if those burdens those you know very direct very uh, you know sometimes extremely costly, burdens can be reduced. They don't have to be eliminated. They're, you know, conservation doesn't have to pay off immediately, but if they can be reduced, then what is revealed, not universally, but what is often revealed is a care for other species. I think most people, were you able to sit them down and give them a truth serum, would not, and sit, you know, do you really want this neighborhood species that you're complaining about to go extinct? They would say no. I, I don't. I don't want to have a hand in it disappearing forever. Um, I just. I'm just mad at the government for doing what it's doing. Or, or I'm just. You know, I just want to be able to feed my family with and and protect my crops. So, I think we we as I said, I think we can learn quite a bit from that in North America by figuring out how to reduce this burden, so we don't get into these endangered species arguments where it's either it's this species life or, you know, this species survival or your job. And, you know, sometimes those conflicts are exaggerated by the media, but sometimes there are very real trade-offs that we haven't, um, we, we don't effectively address in order. And, and by not addressing them, we don't support people in protecting species that I do think there is a base level of care for. Right. A lot of this is systemic. And, you know, Peter, I, when I hear you talking about uh, trade-offs or changes or the pace that we are we are at when we're making changes, um, something that struck me about your work is you mentioned that when you're trying to convince people to eat less meat, one of the things you can tell them is not necessarily that it will improve their life, but they will be no less healthy than if they were also eating meat. Are there other places in our lifestyles where, where that kind of argument just looking at things a little differently can help. 
Oh, I think so. Um, in particular, I suppose the consumer lifestyle, which is responsible for such uh, ecological damage. Uh, and I think there's there's good psychological evidence now from studies that show that uh, it's not really a lasting source of happiness. When, when people buy some new expensive consumer item, um, they're happy with it for the sh in the short term, but very soon that just becomes part of the background. They, they've adjusted to it and they need something new to maintain that level so that they're on a treadmill. They need to keep earning more in order to buy more new things. And even so, it doesn't really get them to uh, lasting satisfaction. Whereas people who have uh, purposes and values that extend beyond themselves, and this can extend to uh, helping non-human animals, but it can also extend to, for example, helping to reduce extreme poverty uh, in the world. And there are many effective organizations that do that. I've founded a charity called The Life You Can Save, which recommends about 20 organizations that have been independently validated as being highly effective in assisting people in extreme poverty. And uh, people who are involved in those sorts of causes, um, supporting those organizations, very often have a level of fulfillment and satisfaction with their lives that um, more than compensates for the fact that because they're donating, they're slightly less well-off financially. That doesn't really have much impact on their well-being and, and satisfaction with life as compared to the purposefulness of uh, what they're living for once they get involved in these issues. We'll be back with more after this. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So I am yielding the floor to our viewers now who are asking some great questions. Um, so here's one that actually gets into Peter's flexible vegan approach. The question is, Peter, I understand you do eat oysters and eggs. Can you explain why you make those allowances? Sure. Um, so firstly, let me say the eggs that I eat have to come from hens who are ranging outside, not just cage free. I don't think that's enough. But there are producers you can find who have eggs, uh, who have hens who are ranging out on pasture um, when they wish to go outside. And I think they have reasonable lives. I think that's that's you know compatible with them having good lives. They don't seem to mind their eggs being taken so you know occasionally i will eat one of these free-range eggs i don't think it's a it's a huge deal uh with oysters and clams and mussels uh to me it seems that the evidence is that they don't have a nervous system that um, means that they feel pain uh it's it's a very simple nervous system that they have and after all they can't run away from pain or move away from it like uh, many other animals who have evolved a capacity for pain so maybe it, it wouldn't have been a part of their evolutionary process to develop that. So, you know, for me, that's, it's not that I eat a lot of oysters or mussels or anything, um, you know, they're not a significant part of my diet really, but I don't, I don't object to eating them. And environmentally, um, they can be 
very good. You know, they, they, they play a role in cleansing the waters, uh, Chesapeake Bay, for example, and the east, they, they, they clean, filter the water of, of those areas. Um, you do need to check where they're coming from because sometimes some some of them might be coming from uh, trawlers that are scraping the bottom of the oceans and causing a lot of damage to coral reefs. But but generally, the oysters and mussels um, and clams that we're growing are, are not um, that we're eating are, are sustainable. So that's why I'm not you know for me it's not a matter of being particularly pure about this. It's a matter of not buying things where my dollars are supporting uh, either cruelty and suffering or uh, significant damage to our planet. Great. Next time you are out in the Pacific Northwest, Michelle, Peter, you and I can go and check out some oysters and clams and other seafood, which our region is very fond of. Um, another uh, listener question. I think we can assume that climate change is happening and that human migration change is coming. So are we going to have to accept that many species that live in zones that won't be habitable are just doomed? Hmm. I hope not. I hope not. Um, some species can migrate, but certainly not all. There's been a debate in the conservation community for many years now about what's what's referred to as assisted migration. Do we want to uh, physically move or uh, found other populations, found new populations of species in climates that are more uh, friendly to their long-term survival. I think we can do that with some species practically. We can't, we certainly can't do it with all species. Um, some, you know, there's some evidence that species can evolve to adapt to new conditions. I don't want to hold out false hope with that. It's, it, we'll be lucky if that happens. Um, very few species can evolve at the speed at which our climate is changing. Um, it has been shown to happen, to be happening in some cases. Um, but there's, there's no doubt that climate change is going to lead to more extinctions. Um, my, I, my hope in my book, I, I didn't want to write a history of conservation that was full of false hope. I hoped it was full of some a sense of possibility, at least. And I guess my, so my, my thought about climate change and extinctions is that just because we can't save everything, just because we're going to have many losses doesn't mean that we don't have opportunities to uh, extend the survival or preserve the survival of many species that we still have healthy populations of. Right, there's a through line in both of your work that reducing suffering is, is a more actionable goal than uh, you know, trying to save the planet. <laughs> there's a, a big spectrum between that. Um, you know, another question, okay, so, how do you feel about the use of monkeys in biomedical research that may help animals, including humans? This is probably for Peter and pretty relevant, given that I think, you know, all three of us are or will soon be uh, benefiting from a vaccine. Right. Um, so, again, you know, as with these other issues, I think it's very hard to have absolute lines. I think there are a huge amount of experiments on animals that are not essential that uh, either could be replaced with non-animal methods or simply we don't really have to do because they're they're not doing things like 
developing vaccines that can save tens of thousands of lives. Um, so I think that's really what, what I focus on in terms of trying to reduce that suffering, as you were saying, Hannah. Um, and uh, I think it's, you know, it's, it's fruitless to say that um, we must never use an animal no matter what the benefits that come from it. Obviously, we should use those animals as humanely as possible and uh, try to minimize their suffering. And I think there has been some progress, say, you know, you know in United States and Europe anyway, and maybe, maybe even more globally, in uh, setting standards for animal experiments. But there's still a lot of very nasty things that are happening. Uh, and that's what I want to focus on, uh, rather than try and say, look, uh, even to develop a vaccine against the pandemic, you can't use a monkey. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Michelle? Uh, the only thing I would add is that the uh, some of the conservation work in in reproductive technologies that's being done, I think, and this is certainly not at as large a scale as uh, medical research on captive animals, but I think there's a growing awareness that welfare needs to be a consideration uh, when when conservationists, reproductive biologists are developing these technologies, um, these heroic measures. I mean, the argument is always, well, this this one animal perhaps could save the life of his or her species and or save the existence of his or her species. But it's a hard job <laughs> to be playing that role, to be, you know, to be the the uh, proverbial guinea pig for some of these technologies. It's um, and I think that there's a growing understanding that that welfare needs to be a, a consideration when deciding are we going to pursue pursue these these last ditch, very long shot, very costly measures, um, or is there a point at which we need to say, if we were going to save the species, we should have done something a long time ago. I have one more question. Um, how has COVID changed our relationship with animals or highlighted it in meaningful ways? So I, I think that what it's highlighted is the fact that we COVID you know, almost certainly came to humans from animals. Um, one prominent theory is that it came through eating wild animals, um, bats and pangolins perhaps from the wet market in Wuhan. Uh, so there have been widespread calls for closing those wet markets. They're dangerous places. They're also uh, very cruel places because you take wild animals, you capture them, you put them alive in cages in the markets with other species, with humans around. They're obviously terrified. Um, their feces around and urine and then they get killed you know a customer says i'll have that one and they get hauled out and have their throats cut and so there's blood around as well so i think uh, there's a movement to try to stop that uh, which is good but as i said earlier uh, factory farms are also an ideal place for developing new viruses because you have so many animals crowded together they're stressed so they may be uh, their immune systems may be weakened by that um, and we have had uh, both uh, avian flu and uh, swine flu coming out of factory farms. I hope this will lead us to rethink uh, that. It, it adds a, a further reason as well as animal suffering and climate change um, and health, as many people would argue. Uh, it adds a further reason to um, doing something about factory farming. 
Absolutely. I, uh, I regret I, to say that I, we are unfortunately running out of time, but I would love to hear if you have something quick to say, Michelle. Just one thought, I, I, the conservation movement and the climate movement, I think have struggled over the years to, to really both within their own ranks and, and with the publics they're addressing to get across the idea that we are all in this together we, we are, you know, our fate is tied to the fate of other forms of life. I think the COVID-19 pandemic makes that uh, horrifyingly clear. And my hope is that it will lead to a greater sense of solidarity between our own species, uh, to within our own species toward all the other species that we share the planet with and share the climate with. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have learned a lot. I hope our viewers have too. Um, so we are unfortunately out of time, but I hope to speak with both of you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks Anna. very much, Anna. Good to talk to you as well, Michelle. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Hannah, Michelle, and Peter for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Seth Halloran. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Ann Krasnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, Go to crosscut.com slash donate. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.